I've been preaching through Matthew now for a few weeks. Years, yeah. Actually, years. This is, we're, we're coming into our fourth year in Matthew, but we're making progress all the time. Um, we've got some visitors with us this morning, so for a couple of minutes, let me give you just kind of a background into where we are in Matthew. It is Wednesday of what's called Passion Week. Passion Week begins with the triumphant entry on Sunday. It concludes with Jesus' resurrection on Sunday. Uh, An awful lot happens in the Gospels in that time. In fact, about half of the Gospel of John is that final week. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are what are called the Olivet Discourse. They were delivered on Wednesday afternoon at some point. Earlier in the day, Jesus had been in the temple and taught. Uh, We know from the Gospel of Luke that he spent Wednesday evening in Bethany at the home of of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And uh, I think probably what happened is as they were leaving Jerusalem, heading east down into the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives, they simply stopped to catch their breath in the shade at the top. And at that point, Jesus' disciples asked him three questions. What is the sign of your coming? When will you come? Actually, when will you come? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus has been answering those questions in these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. He, he answers two questions that they didn't ask. The first of those is, what do you mean by the end of the age? What is final judgment like? We're going to see that next week. He's already hinted at it. And the second question that they didn't ask and they should have was, how are we supposed to live in this time? How are we supposed to live between your first coming and your last coming? What is is our life supposed to look like during that time? And we've talked at length about that. He speaks at length about being ready. And uh, the parable we're looking at this morning, called the parable of the talents, is his final answer to that question. Next week is also a parable. A parable, by the way, is a simple, straightforward story that relates to something people would experience in daily life that brings out a a basic spiritual point. A, A parable is not an allegory where every single element in the parable has some really significant meaning, although the elements in parables can be related to things. This morning, then, we're going to... Simply let the parable outline itself. The first two verses are the setting. Uh, then there is a, a brief response to what Jesus says or what, what happens in that setting. And then at the end, we'll see the outcome of that. Let's pray and we'll look at the scripture together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that what we have in scripture is completely sufficient for us you you said through the apostle peter that you have given us everything for life and godliness the content that we need to know for life and godliness is found in your word the empowerment that we need for life and godliness comes through your spirit and between your word and your spirit lord we have godliness and righteousness And we give you thanks for that. We ask that you would 
nourish our hearts this morning. We ask that your word would do what you have promised that it would do, that it would teach us, that it would rebuke us, that it would correct us, and that it would train us in righteousness. And we ask this humbly, needing your help, and in Jesus' precious name, amen. So the setting, verses 14 and 15, uh, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He's speaking, by the way, uh, looking back to verse 1, then the kingdom of God may be compared to ten virgins. He's simply picking up immediately that theme. So for it is like a man, is the kingdom of God is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. This is not a historical narrative. Jesus is not describing an event that took place in history. He's telling a parable. And so let, let's simply immediately begin to identify how the parable falls, falls into place. The man about to go on a journey is God. That's very clear. These are parables of the kingdom. The final verse of the parable in verse 30 speaks of throwing the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's final judgment. This is a parable about the kingdom of God and heaven and hell. So the man about to go on the journey is God. The slaves are every human being from Adam onward. Every human being from Adam onward, they are slaves and not sons because of Adam's sin. I think you could say that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were children of God. But they forfeited childhood by sinning. And Jesus very clearly says to the Pharisees, you are children of your father, the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are born children of wrath. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. And Paul speaks about being adopted through the blood of Christ and his resurrection into the family of God. I want you to notice that the master entrusts different amounts to his slaves, each to each one according to his ability. Let's just be reminded that the Lord does not gift us identically, use us identically, transform us at the same pace, entrust us with his riches to the same degree. We are all unique to some sense, and the Lord treats us and deals with us in that way. The duration of the journey, it's a long journey, by the way, it says in verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those slaves returned. The duration of the journey, I believe, is the span of time between your birth and your death. We could say that the duration of the journey is from the fall to the second coming. But from a practical point of view, it's your birth to your death. It's your lifetime. And what are the talents this is going to take a couple of minutes. In the English language, a talent is a special or unique ability. So we think about people with artistic abilities, with creative abilities, with uh, athletic abilities. Some people have a talent for making money or designing bridges. I'm blessed to have a natural musical talent, but I have no talent for drawing. That's Penny's talent. That's a talent in English. Everybody got that? We clear on that? Good. 
forget everything I just said because it has nothing to do with the scripture. The word talent in Matthew 25 comes from the Greek word talenton. It only appears here in the New Testament. It's only used in these verses. A talenton was a measure of weight equal to about 75 pounds on average. Now, in that time, weights and measures were, were kind of flexible. And so in ancient, in ancient literature, you find references to, to talents, the talenton, that ranged anywhere from 67 to 84 pounds. If you average that, you get about 75 pounds. So we'll just, we'll just assume it's 75 pounds. That's all it means. It's a measurement of weight equaling 75 pounds. In the same way that today we would talk about a gallon as a measurement. If I said to Brother Adam, would you go get me a gallon? He would say, a gallon of what? If Adam said, I'm heading to Hy-Vee, we need to get milk. And I said, oh, would you get me a gallon? Context tells us it's a gallon of milk. Without a context, you can't know what a talenton is. Fortunately, Jesus tells us in the context of the passage what it is. In verse 18, the wicked slave, the third slave, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So now we know it's a talent of metal, precious metal. In the first century, they had no paper money. They had no credit. Everything that you could possess as money was metal. It's first century Israel, which means it's copper, silver, or gold. In a sense, it doesn't matter which it is. But being that this is a, a parable of the kingdom and it's dealing with God and it's dealing with eternal issues, I think that this talent is 75 pounds of gold. He gave to one 375 pounds of gold and to another 150 pounds of gold and to another 75 pounds of gold, each according to his own ability, and then he went on his journey. Now, why would the English Bible today, most modern English translations, have the word talent? There are a few that have something like 5,000 coins or a bag of money. Most of the time, it's the word talent. Why? And we just kind of have to step out of the passage for a moment. I'm going to deal with this in much more depth next Sunday night at 6, if you're interested. This is what I think. When John Wycliffe first did his English translation in 1380, no one knew what a talenton was. They only had a small handful of Greek manuscripts to work from, and they simply didn't know what the word was. And this is not completely uncommon in Scripture. 1 Chronicles 26.18 is a fantastic verse. It's one of the most humorous verses in the Bible. It's a great memory verse. You might even want to take it as a life verse. It says, At the parbar on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the parbar. Why does it say that? Because we've got no idea what a parbar was. We just don't know. There are some people who've guessed, but we don't know. In 1380, John Wycliffe came across the word talenton and he said, I don't know what that is, but there was an English word, talent, and he just used that word. In 1526, William Tyndale said, talent works for me. I don't know what it is. 
1560, the translators of the Geneva Bible said, still got no idea. In 1611, the King James translators said, talents is about as good as we're going to get. How then do we know today that it's a measure of weight? Because in the 1700s and 1800s, archaeologists and, and scholars and explorers found thousands of Greek manuscripts in the Middle East. We've got almost 6,000 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts in Koine Greek that date back to the 2nd century to the, to the 11th or 12th century spanning a huge amount of time. They didn't just find New Testament manuscripts. They found all kinds of documents. And by being able to look at all kinds of different documents, they realized, oh, a talenton is a measure of weight. Well, why does a modern English Bible, like the legacy standard that I use, or the New American Standard, or the King James, or the New King James, the English Standard, why do they continue to say talent? I think because it's what became memorable. I think the vast majority of you in here could very quickly tell me the first words of Psalm 23. Anybody? The Lord is my shepherd. In 1790, the Dewey Rames translation of the Latin Vulgate has the first verse of Psalm 23 say, The Lord ruleth me. I like that. But what, what kind of appeals to your heart more? The Lord ruleth me. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord ruleth me. Well, yeah, but the Lord is my shepherd is what <laughs> resonates with most of us. Why? Because it's more accurate? It's because it's familiar. And as we meditate on the word shepherd and we think about the word shepherd, we realize there's ruling, there's leadership, there's provision. There's, that's a good word. That's a good word. And it's actually a direct translation. Why is talent found in Matthew 25? Because it has been found in Matthew 25 for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. So what do these talents of gold, what do these weights of gold represent? The man going on the journey is God. The slaves are all humanity, every human, every human being what is the 375 pounds and 150 pounds and 75 pounds of gold represent? Let's remember, they're not different things, but different amounts of the same thing. We're dealing with God. We're dealing with eternal issues. And I believe that the talents, the assets that God gives is nothing short of knowledge of himself. What do we do with our knowledge of God that knowledge comes through different means. We begin with the knowledge that's in our own hearts. Romans 1.18 says that most people suppress that knowledge that's in their hearts, that we are born with, that grows up within us. You can't suppress something you don't have. We suppress it. You know, I've, I've never met anybody who was angry at the idea that Bigfoot exists. I've never met anybody who, was, who got combative about unicorns existing. Why? Because they don't exist. They're mythological. Why are so many people who claim to be atheists so angry at the idea of God? Because they know he exists. They know it in their heart. They don't know how they know it. 
It's been baked into us. It's been created into us. And they're doing everything that they can to suppress it. And if you say to them, I trust in Bigfoot, they're going to go. But if you say to them, I trust in the God who made all things, they get angry. You're reminding them of the one they're trying hard to ignore. Our knowledge of God then is expanded in creation. Psalm 19, chapter, or verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And Romans chapter 1 says that creation reveals God's eternal power and divine nature so clearly that those who worship creatures rather than God have no excuse for doing so. Think about this. The Stone Age man who lived in Papua New Guinea 500 years before Jesus was ever born had no excuse for worshiping creatures because the knowledge of God was in his heart and he could see the evidence of God's eternal nature and divine power in creation, not just in the sky, but in the animals, in the plants, in the flowers, in the birds, in the rivers, in your hand. Isn't that weird that this complex thing works for decades without a rest? Have you ever thought about how sensitive your fingertips are? This is our point of contact with the world you would think that there'd be two-inch calluses on it. But God designed it so that even though we handle everything with this, we can feel a grain of sand with this. It's amazingly sensitive. More than this, God has revealed himself in Scripture. Hebrews 1.1 says that God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many ways and many portions. Eventually, beginning with Moses, that spoken word was put, in, put into written form so that it could be had by all. When God spoke to Abraham and said, get up and leave the land of your fathers and come to the land that I show you, that had to be written down or we wouldn't have known it. Moses wrote it down. It was passed on orally for a time until Moses, and then God, by the Holy Spirit, motivated and prompted Moses and, and constrained his writing so it was exactly true. And then, of course, God's perfect revelation was made final and complete in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 goes on to say, God in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is the perfect, final, complete revelation of God to man. He accomplishes that by being identical to God in every way because he is God. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, he has made him known. So God has spoken to us. We have a knowledge in our heart that there is a God. We have a knowledge in what has been created about God's eternal nature and divine power. He has given us the scriptures and he has revealed himself in his son. 
That's the deposit. That's the asset. That's what the man going on a journey puts into the hands of his slaves. Over the course of our lifetime. Let's see their response. Beginning in verse 16, immediately the one who had received the 375 pounds went and traded with them and gained 375 more. In the same manner, the one who had received the 150 pounds gained 150 more. So the first two slaves respond positively. We see that they respond immediately. They didn't waste any time. We see that they responded energetically. They acted on what they had been given. They recognized the value and they put it to work. And they responded effectually. They knew how to best use this gold entrusted to them. Excuse me. They knew how to best use this gold entrusted to them. They respond immediately, energetically, and effectually. The history of God's people, of God's saints in scripture, is exactly the same. God says to Abraham, get up, leave your father's land, and go to the land that I, that I show you. And Abraham got up. God sent Moses back to Egypt, and Moses went. God revealed to Jesus that John had been arrested. However, he did that, and Jesus immediately began his public ministry. Within minutes of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles, Peter is preaching. You want a sign of the Holy Spirit, it's the word of God going forth. And within a few days of regaining his sight, Saul of Tarsus, who had gone to Damascus to persecute Christians, he was confronted by the Lord Jesus on the road. He's converted. Within days of receiving his sight back, he's preaching in Damascus and proving that Jesus is the Christ. Immediate, effective, Effectual, energetic. I know this is true about every one of you who have trusted Christ. The moment he gave you faith, you believed. He didn't give you faith and have you sit it on a shelf and say, well, I've got faith, I've got it right there, I'll just, you know. It becomes so much a part of us that we can't help but use it and, and but trust the Lord. You began to follow him. You began to learn of him. Your faith has grown over the years, and you've grown in faithfulness. You grow at different rates. Remember, each according to his ability. You grow at different rates. You learn different things. There are some sins, perhaps, that the Lord long ago removed from you that somebody else is still tripping over. It's not the same practice every time. We are not Pringles. He doesn't just stamp us out. Praise God. He works according to his will. The third slave, though, verse 18, but he who received the 75 pounds went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. 75 pounds of gold. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember back to a, a, uh, a documentary I saw in Fort Knox where they, they had the big bricks of gold. They're about 100 pounds, 400 ounces. Um, and how big are they? They're about the size of a, of a house brick. They're vast, huge amount. How, how, how deep do you have to dig a hole to, build, to bury a brick? We're not talking about a truckload. 
We're talking about something that you could use your sandal to uncover and drop it in and cover it over. So this man, there's no urgency in him to respond quickly other than to get rid of it as quickly as he can. He expends minimal energy digging a hole just big enough to conceal it. His actions are utterly ineffectual. The reality is, is that his existence made no difference to the master. The reality is, is this man may, may as well never have existed at all. At least in the parable of the soils, you remember the first soil, the man, there's, there's people whose hearts are like roadway and the grain is scattered on the road and the birds eat it. At least the birds got something this guy buries a brick of gold in the ground, and the only thing he adds to it in this long, long, long journey is dirt and mold. For context, yeah. if a talent's 75 pounds in today's dollars, it's a million eight. It's what? A million eight. Million eight, yep. Yep. And we understand as, as we then put this into to reality that unbelievers have suppressed and ignored and sometimes actively opposed the revelation of God granted to them. Every human being has within them the knowledge of God in their own hearts. The scripture says that. They'll say they don't know. They'll say they're atheists, they believe there is no God, or they'll say that they're agnostics, they're not sure. The Bible says they know and they suppress. I prefer to believe the Bible because it doesn't change. Amen. Others have been exposed to the scriptures. Even before Christ, there were peoples in the Middle East and North Africa and Europe who knew of the God of Israel. They knew of the writings of God's prophets. Certainly the Assyrians and the Persians had that knowledge because of Daniel and because of others. And after Jesus comes, he dies, he rises again, the Holy Spirit comes, the apostles begin preaching, persecution in Jerusalem drives them out, and the gospel is preached widely and broadly. And the reality is, in our day, the gospel has been preached virtually everywhere. If we think about the gospel being preached everywhere all at once, that has not happened. But the nations right now that are trying to destroy Israel in the Middle East and North Africa, do you know that at one time they were the intellectual hearts of Christianity? When a man named Arius came up and said, Jesus is a divine person, but he's not God. A man named Athanasius said, no, that's wrong. That's blasphemous. Athanasius was from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. 1,500 years ago, there was a strong Christian presence in places in China. The gospel has been preached broadly and widely, not to every person, but it's been, been preached around the world. What every unbeliever has in common is that they've buried the revelation that God has given them. They suppress what's in their heart. They replace God's creation with evolution. They disregard the scriptures 
I love the websites that have all the contradictions. Most of them, 90% of them are simply if they would read it in context, the answer's there. And of course, worst of all, most heretical at all, they deny Jesus. Some deny his deity. Others deny his humanity. There are still a few people who simply say Jesus never existed. He was completely invented. The Bible is completely a human invention. There's nothing divine about it. It is completely human. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to invent a Bible, would you say at the par bar on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the par bar? I, I don't think so. By the way, that verse, 1 Chronicles 26, 18, is evidence of the reliability of the Bible. How? 500 years ago, when people looked at that and said, we've got no idea what it, was, what it means, nobody said, so let's just tear it out. We don't know what it means, but it's in the word of God. We don't tear that out. Let's not worry about what the word parbar means. Let's worry about what the word repent means, which we know, and sin and grace and mercy. Let's, let's focus on the words we know. Well, what's the outcome of all this? Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents, the 375 pounds, came up and brought 375 more pounds, saying, Master, you handed 375 pounds over to me. See, I have gained 375 more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the, 70, uh, the 150 pounds came up and said, Master, you handed 150 pounds over to me. See, I have gained 150 more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The first two slaves have a good outcome. They double the master's money. But the master is not concerned about the money. The master in the parable, even in the parable, he doesn't care about the money. Let me tell you why I think that. Between these two, three, these two slaves, he gave 375 pounds and 150 pounds, and math is not my talent, but I think that's 525 pounds of gold. And he says that that's a few things. That's a few things. 525 pounds of gold. Friday's closing price was about $1,993 an ounce. An ounce. Take 525 times 16 times 1993, 62, and you come almost to $12 million. It's a vast amount of money. In fact, I think it's more than that. I think that the almost 12 was the five. It's a vast amount of money. And the master says, it's just a few things. He doesn't care about the money. He's not looking for the prophet. What does he want? He's looking to see if they're faithful. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful. You were devoted to me. You were loyal to me. You had my interests at heart. I want you to notice he says to these first two slaves exactly the same thing. 
It's the same evaluation. Well done, good and faithful slaves. It's the same description. You were faithful with a few things. It's the same promotion. I will put you in charge of many things. There's a difference between 375 pounds of gold and 150 pounds of gold. I would take either if anybody's giving it. But there's a difference between the two. He doesn't say to the guy with the 375, oh, I'm going to put you in charge of a bunch of things. And with the guy with 150, I'm going to put you in charge of more things. It's exactly the same promotion. And the reward is exactly the same. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a percentage. He says, you enter into my joy. He doesn't say, I'm proud of you. He doesn't say, you've pleased me. He says, you enter into my joy. That points us directly to life in Christ. He inherits all things. And all in him share in that inheritance. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that no one has seen, heard of, or even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I think that's because our vocabulary isn't big enough. Our minds can't grasp it. Our hearts couldn't comprehend it if he showed it to us now. Ephesians 1.3 says that we will receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Romans 8.18 says that incomparable glory will be revealed to us. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17 calls it an eternal weight of glory. The Bible says very little about eternity. It says very little about heaven. It says very little about the eternal state on the new earth. And again, I think it's because we simply can't comprehend what any of that would mean until we're there, until we've received new minds and new hearts. But here's the thing. We will share in the joy of our Lord and Savior. Unfortunately, there's also a negative outcome. Verse 24, and the one who had received the one talent, 75 pounds, came up and says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And went away and hid your talent in the ground. So you can have back what's yours. The thing is, is he's not afraid. If he'd been afraid, he would have put it in the bank and at least earned interest. True fear of God always leads to worship. And humility and submission and service. Probably the worst thing the Bible says about unbelievers is, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This man doesn't fear God. He's acting in pure self-preservation. The Bible never says somebody was too afraid of God. Always that they were never afraid. And so the master says to him in verse 26, the, the master answered and said to him, I'm so sorry I frightened you. I'm so sorry you were afraid. I didn't want you to be afraid. He says, you wicked, lazy slave. Wicked. 
and lazy. You knew that I reap where I didn't sow, and I gather what I, I, where I scattered no seed. Therefore, you ought to put my money in the bank, and at least when I came back, I would have had my money with interest. Therefore, take away the 150 pounds or the 75 pounds from him and give it to the one who has the 375. Here's the principle of all of this. For to the one who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And exactly like we've already seen a few times in the Gospel of Matthew, throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, this is not about God giving Christians different abilities. And somebody takes the time and puts in the the effort and the sweat equity to learn how to play piano really, really amazingly well. But God has given me this talent for music and I just don't do much with it. And so as a result, he casts me into outer darkness. This is about what did you do with the revelation of God and especially the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we understand this parable, we realize that there are many people in this world, the majority, in fact, who bury every last bit of knowledge of God. They suppress it in their hearts. They redefine it in creation and say it's evolution. They argue against the scriptures. They reject Christ. This slave acted in pure self-preservation. And what was the outcome? He lost everything, including himself. Everything. God created people to live forever, and they will. The question is, where and under what conditions? Eternity is all about extremes. This world is not about extremes. This morning we left for Creighton at about 6.30, and the sunrise was beautiful. It was just remarkable. The oranges and the pinks and the yellows and, and the light and the glow was just marvelous. And tomorrow we might get up and the sunrise will just, it'll just be depressing. It'll be gray and cloudy and no light. It, this is a mixed world. Somebody goes to sniff a rose and it's beautiful and then, then they realize they're allergic. I have a friend in Creighton who's had... COVID twice and he recovered very well but he can't taste anything this is a mixed world the eternal state is a, is a place of extremes the unrighteous is cast into darkness there's a certain amount of light everybody has here there's a certain light of God everybody has here, not because they're part of God, not in some Hindu thing, but because God has made himself known. And there's some kind of comfort that says there's something, there's some reason, there's some kind of peace. There's at least my dog who loves me. And the fact that I love beauty and I love music and I love going outdoors or I love not going outdoors and enjoying what I have, there's, there's some kind of good. But in that place of outer darkness, there's nothing good. Every bit of light, every bit of pleasure, every bit of comfort, every bit of hope is gone. It's a place of extremes. And eternal life in Christ is a place of extremes. We will be brought to a place where is nothing but light. 
God himself will be our light. Our sun does a bad job at giving us light. It likes to have sun flares and it rotates through the sky and we have to come up with other means and it reflects off the moon and then the moon moves around and we don't have the moon. God is going to be our light. There will be no darkness. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. No tears, no death. All of the former things are gone. It's a place of extremes, extreme darkness and nothing but torment or extreme light and nothing but joy. Now, why did Jesus give us this parable? Let's, let's bring it home. Because, beloved, God is not pretend. This life is not a game and judgment is real. Those respond faithfully to the revelation God gives them, which the parable says will, will, will be in different amounts to each person, but it's the same revelation, will receive his blessing. They're brought into his marvelous light. They experience his joy for all eternity. Those who reject his revelation will be cast into outer darkness where there is only suffering. If we had no sin... The knowledge of God in our hearts would be sufficient. And the evidence of God's eternal nature and divine power in creation would just be icing on the cake. But because of sin, it's all too easy to misinterpret and misunderstand those things. And so God has given us his word. He makes his revelation unmistakable and obvious Romans 1 says, sinners are without excuse when they ignore creation. How much more are sinners without excuse when they ignore God's word? On the one hand, the judgment that's faced by the wicked is indescribable and, and horrific. We cannot begin to comprehend it. The distance between God and man will become infinitely vast. The, the record of sins will be complete and detailed and everyone will bring its punishment. On the other hand, restoration to peace with our creator is the simplest thing there is. There is nothing simpler. Perhaps you, you know this song. We're going to sing it in a minute. This is the third verse. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. You rose, the grave and death were conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. Do you believe that Jesus is your rock and redeemer? Do you believe that he is the gracious savior of your ruined life? Do you believe that your guilt and cross was laid upon his shoulders? Do you believe that in your place he suffered, bled, and died? Do you believe that he rose conquering the grave and death for all who believe? Do you believe that he has broken the bonds of sin and shame that once held you down? You see, the, the final words of this modern hymn connect beautifully with the passage today. Good and faithful servants are those who say, may all my days bring glory to your name. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the scriptures in which you reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and opens our hearts and gives us the gift of faith and gives us the gift of repentance. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name.